KMTT Kimitzion Teitzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. This is Ezubek. Today is Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Bahar, the sixteenth day of Iyar, thirty-first day of the Omer. Lamed Aleph La Omer, and we have the Erev Shabbat program. We're taking a bit of vacation, the Erev Shabbat program, but Emitz uh, Hashem will be back every week with the Erev Shabbat program. We'll be starting this week, and I, I hope every week, or at least many of the weeks, a um, special part of the Erev Shabbat program where we will be taking one uh, character, one great Gadol, whose Yodzai falls on the coming days, and have a short uh, discussion, halachic or agadic or biographical discussion of, uh, of that of that Rav, of that Gadol. And today we will have Harav Binyamin Tabori, who will be discussing the Maram Mirutenberg, whose Yotzeit falls this week. In today's Parsha, Parsha Temor, has a lot of different sections. It begins with the sections of the Kohanim, and a couple of other halachot that are vaguely connected to Kohanim, and then the Parshat Mo'adim, an important Parsha, which lists all the, all the Yom Tovim. And in the end, the section of the Mekalel, and some halachot that deal with torts and murder and, and injury. In within the Pashat HaMoadim, text which is also connected to HaMoadim Shabo Anachmu Shuyim, the, the holidays in which we are in the middle. So it lists Pesach, and then it has Sfirat HaOmer, and then it has Shavuot. And then the Pasuk says, after describing the holiday of Shavuot, it says that when you are harvesting the harvest of your land, you should not complete the harvest to the end of the field. You have to leave pe'ah. You leave the corner of the field is left. Lo pa'at sadacha As you harvest, you should not complete the corner of the field. And as you gather up the sheaves of grain, the sheaves of wheat, so anything that falls, you don't re-pick up. You leave it for the, the poor people. This is the mitzvah of there's another mitzvah called Shechecha, things that you overlooked, which isn't mentioned in this pasuk. The question is, of course, why is this pasuk here? The pasha is clearly dealing with laws of holidays. There's an agricultural law, which in fact is mentioned in last week's parashat, Pashat Kedoshim, Parikutet Pasuk Tet. Why is the mitzvah of Leket and Pe'ah repeated after the Mitzvah of Omer and Shavuot. son of Avchem Velazhin, Shiva of Yeshivat Velazhin, gave the following answer. You should remember that Omer and Shavuot is presented in the Torah, specifically in Pashat Emor, in connection with their agricultural aspect. The Omer on the second day of Pesach was the first harvest of barley, of se'orah, which was then brought as a korban, allowing you to continue the harvest. You weren't allowed to harvest until the omer had been had been brought. 
And then, Uslatem lachem imocharat ha-shabbat miyom haviyachem et omer ha-tznufa sheva shabbatot vimoti. I know you count seven weeks from the day you brought the omer, the first offering of barley. You count seven weeks. And then on that day, which we call Shavuot, what, what do you do? The Pasuk doesn't say there's a holiday. The Pasuk says on that day, you should bring a mincha chadashad Hashem, you bring a sacrifice from the first wheat harvest. It's called the mincha chadashah. And that day is Shavuot. So Shavuot and the entire process of Sfirat HaOmer is, is described in the Pasha as the harvesting of grains in Eretz Yisrael and bringing a korban, the first korban, the first fruits, so to speak, are brought as a Korban on the second day of Pesach and on the day we call, which we call Shavuot. So, Rebetzalah said the following. He said, why does the Torah say we should give Leket and Peah, we should leave Leket and Peah for the poor people? There's a Mitzvah Tzedakah in the Torah, which presumably, if you fulfill it, then all the poor people are taken care of. So this is another method of giving food to Aniyim. But, but why specifically? Why not just say, give them money. Give 10% of your salary to the, to the poor people. The answer is that aside from support of the poor, what the Torah here is saying, as it says in other mitzvot connected to uh, land and agriculture, is to remind us that the land does not belong to us. The land is not totally ours. Ki li chol ha'aretz, as the Torah says concerning a different mitzvah, which soon we will be engaged in the mitzvah of Shevi'it, of Shemitah. Kidli chol ha'aretz. Lashem ha'aretz umelo'ah. Something is yours, you use it as you want. If the land basically belongs to God, but is leased to you, it's granted to you to use it within God's overarching ownership and sovereignty, then certain small acts are required to remind us of that status. You have to leave, it's not up to you, you have to leave a little bit. When you're harvesting, cutting down the wheat, that's the act of, 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 of ownership, the act of, of, of domination that one does. You, you, you take everything out of the field, you take it, you take it home to your, uh, to your, uh, storage houses. You, you harvest the food, meaning you bring in the wheat from nature to yourself. So you can't take it all because this specific act whereby a person is is empowering himself, showing his domination over the field, requires one to leave a little bit to show that you, in fact, do not dominate it. That's clear. That's a well-known idea that many, many commentators say about the mitzvah. All these mitzvot have to do with agriculture, specifically, Leket, Shechecha, and Peah. So, Vitzvah said, okay, that's in a regular field. But, Somebody might imagine that in a field where I had done the mitzvah of Minchata Omer and the mitzvah of Shtehalechem, I've taken the first fruits before I even began, not at the end, but the very beginning, the first cutting I brought to God. So it's clear that I've made my statement about who this field belongs to and what my relationship to it. What my relationship to it is. One would imagine, why should he have to leave Peah? Why should he have to leave anything for the Aniyim? Therefore, the Torah specifically says that after bringing the Omer and bringing the Shtei Alechem on Shavuot, still, 
Because even if it's that kind of katsir, even if it's that harvest, the very same harvest that you began, Pesach, and from Pesach to Shavuot, you still have to leave Pe'ah. And the Pasuk ends, Ani Hashem Elokeichem. To remind us once again that God is our God. Expanding somewhat on this idea of Rebetzalah, and in fact is, a, a fairly common human impulse. You give a little bit to God. You make a statement, so to speak. Okay, you're the owner, you're the Lord, you're the king. Having done that, you then are free to do anything you want. In other words, perhaps we pay lip service or perhaps we even believe, truly, that, that we have to say to God that He's the, He's the Lord of all. But once you, you pay your tax, then he leaves you alone. And now, practically speaking, you do own it yourself. You do receive the world into your own, into your own hands. For instance, sometimes people give tzedakah in order to compensate for the fact that what, the, what they do with the rest of their money is not bounded by particularly ethical or spiritual concerns. If I give tzedakah, then I can waste the rest of my money on uh, sumptuous meals or cruises or whatever I want, and uh, because it's my money. But, alright, so you pay a little bit to God, now it's okay. Psychologically, it's a common human, I'm afraid, a common Jewish, uh, common Jewish impulse. Give a little money to shul, so now you can, you don't have to go to shul. You give a little money to shul, so you can Talk, question, her, do whatever you want. It's your shoe, you paid for it. You paid God off, and now God's house is your house. If you don't give money to the shoe, you feel a little bit of awe. But once you've paid, okay, so you've, it's like a Kenyan. You've bought the world, you've bought the shoe, you've bought the right to your own money, you've bought the right to do anything you want by paying a kind of a lip service one day a week. Give to God what is God's, and then you can do anything you want with what's yours. And that's what this Pasuk is saying. Even if you've done a very significant symbolic act, the first cutting to God of the barley on Pesach, the first cutting of the wheat to God on Shavuot, afterwards you'll bring Bikurim, which continues from Shavuot on, the first fruits. Okay, so you've paid off yours. Now God says, okay, now you can eat the fruit. You're really allowed to eat the food after doing that. Once you cut the first wheat, once you cut the first barley, you're allowed to eat. But even when you're allowed to eat, it doesn't mean it's all yours. You still have obligations. <clears throat> you still have a, a participation. You're still a shutaf. You're a partner with the rest of the world, with your community, and with God's community in these fields, in these resources. And therefore, the mitzvah of pe'ah, the mitzvah of leket, still exists. You still cannot take it all. Okay, now we have as our guest, hopefully a, I believe, I'm hoping a permanent guest, every week, or at least in the coming weeks, Harab Benjamin Tabori, this week's Godel. The outside falls this week, the Naram Mi Rutenberg of Meyerberg Abaruch, Harab Benjamin Tabori. This week we commemorate the Yardzite of the Maharam Mi Rutenberg, Moreno Harav Mayor of Rutenberg, 
who lived approximately from the years 1215 to 1293. He was of German ancestry and was born into a family of Tamir Chachamim. We know that he was he traveled to France and lived in other communities when he grew in learning and learned in yeshivas. The first recorded note that I was aware of of Rabbi Meir Merutenberg was when he was approximately 27 years old. He witnessed in France one of the tragedies of Jewish history, the famous Sreifat Talmud, the, the day that they burned an auto de fe, they burned the Talmud. Rabbi Meir Merutenberg wrote a poem, Sha'ali Surufava Eish. Surufava Eish, that which was burned in fire, referring to the Talmud, referring to the literature and lore of Judaism. This poem has existed until this day and is still recited on Tisha B'Av, on the day that we mourn all types of Jewish tragedies that occurred during the years. Rav Meir Merutenberg then did travel, go back to his home in Germany, where he enjoyed a most remarkable reputation for being one of the Gedole Hador, one of the poskim of his generation, and one of the people that declared and established Minhagim for all times. Although he had no official position, he was not the rabbi of the community. To the best of my understanding, he was not even in a rabbinic post, but yet he was acknowledged as the leader, the biggest Tamit Chacham, who, as I said, was asked many questions, many she'ilot. In Yeshiva University, there was a professor named Agis, who, Professor Agis, who spent many of his, much of his effort in studying the life's times and works of Marami Rutenberg, and he published two volumes about the Marami Rutenberg. One of his main theses, one of the main theses that Professor Agus expounded was that you can judge the importance of Rishonim by the amount of She'elot that they were asked and by the nature of the She'elot that were involved. The comment, of course, relates to people that were considered poskim, that were considered deciders of Jewish law, rather than to the people who more were involved in theoretical learning, or what we would call the yeshiva type of learning, which is not necessarily attuned to psak halacha. And it's interesting to note that, for example, in our generation, there were certain Russian yeshiva who were known as poskim, but many Rosh Yeshiva were not known as Poskim, and many Poskim were not Rosh Yeshiva. For example, we have in America, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, whose Svarim Igros Moshe were spread over the world, who became one of the, perhaps the most important Posek of the United States, of the United States in the area, in the era of, of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, let's say the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Rabbi Moshe also was a Rosh Yeshiva, but he, his fame was through the world of Psak rather than the world of, 
of Lamdes. His Svarim, Dibros Moshe, many, many volumes of Dibros Moshe are certainly not as widespread and not as used as the Igros Moshe. On the other hand, Rav Salavechik was known as the quintessential Rosh Hashiva who gave Shirim, and although there were cases where people asked him questions, the genre of Shelotu Chuvot, of a Sefer of, of Chuvot, of responses written and answered by him, does not exist today. He was not in the world of Psak. Apparently, Rabbi Marami Rutenberg was in the world of Psak, and therefore the amount of Chuvot and the questions, the type of questions, were considered by Professor Agus to be a major criterion in determining the greatness and the appreciation of the scholars of his generation. Of course, it should be added that this comment is referring to the people who lived and wrote before the printing press was discovered. In order to maintain the chuvos of, let's say, the Rajba or Marambi Rutenberg, they needed to be copied. You had to hire someone who would actually sit and hand write all the responses that we have. In order to, A, have the questions, they had to be asked in the first place. Secondly, it had to be considered important enough for people to write it, copy it, and have many different scribes who, where we have different manuscripts of Chuvot, and that certainly shows their importance. Lahavdil, let's say today we take a best-selling novel by one of the uh, popular novelists in America today who might sell millions of copies of his book, but would anybody consider that book worthy enough, important enough that somebody should actually sit and copy it in order to preserve it for future generations? The, the Rishonim, the manuscripts that existed, show how important people consider these manuscripts. And the volumes of Rav Meir certainly attest to the fact that many questions were asked to him, and the people considered it important enough to, to redact it, to copy it, and transmit it to future generations. The importance of Rav Meir today is based on the fact that many of Amin Hagim Many of our customs are traced back to Marami Rutenberg as he instructed, as he led his life, and we have a number of his students who record his tradition. One of the most famous disciples of the Marami Rutenberg was the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, who was a student and quoted often the decisions of his Rebbe, Marem Rutenberg, and of course in many Svarim, as in Hagos Maimonios, and many, many Svarim, we have the opinion of Marem Rutenberg transmitted, and it's fair to say that many, many, many of Amin Hagim, a great bulk of Amin Hagim that we have, which came through the, the Marem Rutenberg until the days of the Shulchan Aruch, reflect the importance of Marem Rutenberg within Jewish history. The interesting historical bio- biography of Rameir Merutenberg, it refers basically to a, a famous story that happened approximately in the year 1286. Apparently the German government imposed taxes on the Jewish community, and in effect they imposed such heavy taxes that they made Jews to be servants of the, of the crown, of the kingdom at that time. Of course the Jews objected, and Many of them decided, got together, and decided to leave Germany. One of those people was the Marami Rutenberg. When he left Germany, apparently someone recognized him, 
and informed the authorities that they had the opportunity to capture Reb Meir and they held him for ransom. They put him in jail and held him for ransom. The tradition that's quoted in certain sources is that he was in a, in a prison in a place called Ensisheim. Perhaps he was transferred to a prison in Wasserberg. The, the legend is quoted by the Chida that Maram Mirutenberg refused to be ransomed. There might be two reasons that which are quoted in different historical sources why he refused to be ransomed. There's one assumption that the Jews did indeed raise a sizable amount of money, equivalent to millions of dollars today, to ransom Rebbe Rutenberg, and he resisted this ransom payment. As he said, there's a Gemara in Masechus Gitten, which says we do not pay too much money for ransom. Paying ransom would only encourage people to capture other people and demand ransom for them as well. To pay the ransom would be self-defeating, although Rabbi Meir himself would languish in jail, ultimately it would be better for the Jewish people if the ransom not be paid. Another tradition is that although the money was indeed raised, the government insisted that this money be paid as taxes. That they insisted that the money go to show that the Jews will pay the taxes that they were charged. Since the Jews rejected the tax, they said that they would pay a ransom for Abmeyer Merutenberg, but they refused to have it acknowledged as a tax because that that would cause the terrible servitude of the Jewish people to the German authorities. Whatever the reason is, it's well known in Jewish thought, in Jewish history, in Jewish legend, that Rabbi Merutenberg refused to be ransomed, and he eventually died in prison in 1293. Apparently, he was not even brought to Kvura at that time. He died in prison, and it seems that the authorities even insisted that a ransom be be paid in order to redeem the body, in order to bring the body of Reb Meir Mutenberg to Kevi Yisrael, they said, you must also pay. It's not simple, it's not clear why he was not redeemed from prison after his death, but the legend is that there was a very rich person, years later, who decided to pay actually a king's ransom, a hefty amount of money, in order to redeem the body of Rebleza, of Marami Rutenberg. And according to the legend, this wealthy individual had a dream in which Rebbe Rutenberg appeared to him and asked for the person to ransom his body. And the ultimate result was that Rebbe Rutenberg was brought to Kev Yisrael and ultimately the Gevir in question, the wealthy individual who paid the money to ransom Rabbi Meir had the privilege of being buried adjacent to the grave of Rabbi Meir I had an incident, an interesting incident that I'd like to recall in this connection. I was once in Montreux in, in, in Switzerland 
and there is a famous castle of Shion by the shore of Lake Geneva, right outside Montreux. A beautiful, beautiful area. And the tradition, of course, is that Byron wrote a famous poem, The Prisoner of Shion, and he actually wrote it in Shion in memory of people who were imprisoned in Shion. I was there passing through and stopped by just to see the prison. Two busloads of Haredi Jews, two people, two busloads of people that seemed to be very, very right-wing Orthodox, who did not seem to be the type to go on sightseeing tree, trips in Shion, got off the bus. I went over to one of them and I said to them, why and where are you going? What is this tour? And he told me that there is a tradition that they had that Shion, that famous prison of Shion, was the prison in which Rameh Merutmer was imprisoned. Of course, historically, it seemed very strange to me. As I mentioned, the historical evidence seems to be that Rameh Merutmer was imprisoned in Ensesheim, in Wasserburg, perhaps in Germany, perhaps in France. I had never heard that he was imprisoned in Switzerland. Of course, the borders then could have been different than today, and it's hard to know the names of different cities. But nevertheless, the tradition of the Haredim that at least got off the bus, I don't know any historical tradition, is that the prison was indeed that famous prison of Shion out in Switzerland near Montreux. Rameh Rutenberg will always be remembered through the Minhagim, through the Psakim, that we continue until this day. Yehizachol Baruch. Thank you. We've been listening to Harav Tavori discussing the figure, the character uh, of the Marani Rutenberg, one of the great Gdolim of the late Middle Ages. And that's our program for today. I would like to conclude with an interesting vote, a beautiful vote. I saw the name of the Dvar Avram, Avram Kahana, the Rav of, uh, of Kovna, the Dvar Avram. At the end of the Pasha, in not a particularly pleasant uh, environment, not a particularly pleasant place, the Pasuk says, Venatata Nefesh Tachat Nafesh. It's like an eye for an eye, a soul for a soul. Someone kills somebody, you kill, you kill the murderer. The Dvavram once, uh, once said that just as there's a nefesh tachat nafesh, soul for soul, in the negative sense, by someone who kills somebody, takes a soul, so you take his soul, he says the same thing should be true the other way around. Because we know that midat tova, Everything that's the, the laws, the balance, the justice on the side of, of bad, of evil, so much more so, it's greater even, the same logic on the, on the side in the area of, of good things. So hence, if you save someone's soul, then you, the reward should be nefesh tacha nefesh. If you've given a soul, not taken a soul, but supported a soul, given a soul, then you should get a soul in return. Hence, one who saves somebody else, in financial, physical, in any sense, one who's spiritual, if you've supported someone else's soul, someone else's life, 
then your own soul and life is increased. You already have one, right? You're not going to, or if you're sick, maybe you'll get it. Or if you're not sick, but your own soul is, is strengthened because of the logic and the justice of nefesh tachad nefesh, and he used the expression, nishama yitera, which we associate with Shabbat. If you give a soul to somebody else, or you support someone else's soul, then you get a soul for yourself, and now you have nishama, nishama yitera. That's it for today. Wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. We'll be back next week on uh, Monday, where Rav uh, Tavoy will be giving his share in the weekly mitzvah. This has been Ezra Bick speaking for KMTT, the Torah podcast. Kimitzion, Tetzay Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim, Shabbat Shalom, Vechol Tuf.